0: Although you may not have heard about them, international talks on how to address the problem of climate change are currently underway in Cancun, Mexico. And we are joined now by the New York Times' Andrew Revkin, who writes the .Earth column for the website. We have linked that to our show page at WNYC.org. And Andy has also just returned from Cancun. Welcome back.
1: It's good to be back. It was good to be there.
0: We've spent... Well, it was nice going to Cancun. I don't know, was it... Uh, I it's... never
1: got in the water.
0: <laughs> you spent more than two decades covering climate treaty negotiations. How would you judge this current round in Cancun compared to others in recent memory, like the ones in Copenhagen and Kyoto?
1: Sure. Well, the the ebbs and flows in this thing do reach pitches, and pul- there are pulses. Last year, there was such an expectation from Ban, Ban Ki-moon at the U.N. right down through... Um, activist groups that, as Ban Ki-moon would say, seal the deal, you know, the sense that you could actually have a comprehensive deal among 194 parties, you know, ranging from the Maldives to uh, Russia, from from Saudi Arabia to the United States and China, it just was never realistic. The process is, as many scientists have delineated and policy experts over over years, you know, this is a century-scale problem. It will take generations. To address it, and it will never be solved or sealed. It, it, but now that doesn't mean, as a news story, it didn't have again, you know, moments. Last year was clearly a moment. Kyoto was a moment too, for a variety of reasons. Uh, this year is very much like a, you know, something of kind of collapsed, and now it's being slowly rebuilt. That kind of thing.
0: So, is any is the mood any more hopeful? Is uh, there any kind of binding agreement that would address the problem of climate change? That's expected Where, to come it, out of this.
1: If you took that word binding out of the sentence, yeah, but there's no sign at all that a binding agreement in the way you you and I would look at, um, you know, buying a house or um, getting married (laughs) is a binding agreement. This is, in fact, last year even in in Copenhagen, the phrase was politically binding, which just means really embarrassing if you break the deal. (laughs) What does that really mean in a world of trillions of dollars of economic flows and gigatons of carbon dioxide? Not much.
0: So if little worthwhile is likely to come out of this, why
1: bother? I'm just finishing writing a post on on that very question, uh, partially explaining why I left and partially explaining why it's important to keep track of this. I, I don't see it. There, there's a really smart kind of broad thinker at Rockefeller University here in Manhattan, Jesse Osabel, who... He, he He's written pretty cynically that most of what you see in energy policy around the world is, is, as he puts it, pulling on disconnected levers, meaning a lot of motion, a lot of stuff going on. But really, things just unfold the way they would anyway. I, I think this process has made that to be not the case. I think the soft actions that have been taking place for through tw- about 20 years of rec- growing recognition that climate is a real problem that the only actions that will actually make difference have to be global because the emissions mix in the atmosphere doesn't matter you know whether the co2 comes from a beijing taxi or a boston power plant that i do think there are things that have happened in the world these last 20 years that wouldn't have happened without this kind of annual focus i was just on a panel um at the um treaty talks um uh, 24 hours ago with a, a very smart uh, person um uh Melinda, I can't remember her last name, she's at the U.N. Foundation, who stressed that um, this same idea, that there, this is really – she actually said maybe we should switch to biennial <laughs> at least get to recognize this is a long-haul thing. But but there is – I don't see it as meaningless. There's stuff that goes on that's real and does, has diverted the world from what's called business as usual.
0: So why did you leave early?
1: Well, I have multiple hats now. I teach at Pace University. I, I'm a senior fellow for environmental understanding there, which I a a title I invented, and um, trying to get some things in gear for the next semester. And um, I, I spent two weeks away from my family last year uh, to cover these talks, and I just don't feel I can justify spending two weeks away this year, knowing that it's kind of incremental. John Broder, wonderful New York Times reporter, arrived on Sunday, he's going to carry the ball for the news side of the paper the rest of the week. So, so I felt I could safely leave the premises and still keep track. I'll be blogging through the rest of the week and far beyond, of course, on the process.
0: Well, how can we expect uh, the countries of the world to agree on anything when even the Obama administration's efforts at a soft solution by yeah. EPA regulation is uh, facing major resistance in Congress?
1: Yeah, well, this gets down to a, a dynamic that I wrote about on dot earth a year or two ago um when I said is the climate problem a pollution problem or a technology problem? And obviously that's a false duality. It's not it's not all of the above one or the other. But I think for the for the first 20 years of discourse on this, it was assumed that it could be treated in terms of policy and legislation and and treaty making as a pollution problem. There's this bad stuff coming from pipes and things, and we need to restrict it. And you could have a trading mechanism, you know, as we tried and failed in the cap and trade bill, or um, the uh, international counterpart, the Kyoto-style agreement, and that would slowly kind of ratchet it down. The reality is um, still we live in a world where roughly 90% of energy comes from fossil fuels, burned the conventional way. You know, you burn it, you get the heat, You uh, and you harvest that energy. And the idea that you could shift something so pervasive and widespread and linked to virtually everything we do, from me talking to you on the telephone to to someone uh, turning on a power plant and for the first time in Southern Africa, where there's, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, if you leave out South Africa, that whole region has the same amount of electricity access as Poland, one country in Europe. They, you know, people need energy. Now, more than societies have decided they need to restrict these greenhouse gases. So the idea that it can be just sort of legislated and that will ratchet things in a new way is not really holding up. Despite the fact
0: that there is almost unanimous scientific agreement about climate change?
1: Yeah, well, again, uh, there are two camps who see that evidence uh, and, and agree it's totally serious uh, problem, but who have very different sense of where do you go from here. There still are many, uh, some would say naive folks, who just feel if you just make the case clear enough to people that the long-term building risk here is unacceptable and we need to um, accept a higher cost for energy choices that are polluting choices now to avert these risks in the long haul. That camp is very durable. I, 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 you know, it's very, to my mind, a, kind of a 20th century camp. Part of my head was in that sense of wishful thinking for a long time, too. I, I You know, I was never an advocate in the sense I was always reporting on things um, through the first 20 years of my work on this issue. And the other camp, though, says, look, when you look at the reality of the energy trends around the world, the fact that 2 billion people on the planet right now don't have access to any energy except for firewood and dung you know, that's what they're cooking on, and um, they don't have a light to do their homework by, that we need uh, an energy revolution that's seriously engaged in investing, you know, actually what would be a modest amount of money by comparison directly, and real aggressive sustained research on on ways to harvest energy cheaper and more efficiently from sunlight and other sources of that, and then finding new kinds of policies and programs for disseminating that where it's needed most, which is, by the way, mostly in developing countries. That's where nearly all the growth in emissions is going to come. So it's a very different, again, people who totally buy and accept the um, broad body of science that we're heading in a tough direction here have very legitimate sort of new, kind of a new view that's slowly uh, catching on as you see more stasis on the pollution-style approach.
0: We're talking with Andrew Repkin of the New York Times on today's underreported look at the Cancun Mexico Climate Change Conference. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm It Lopate. On your blog, you describe these treaty talks as some mind boggling game of multi dimensional chess.
1: Yeah, well, that's because, and this was really clear in Copenhagen when. Uh, uh, by the way, one aspect of the subdued nature of things this year is that countries are just uh, beaten down. The, the Seychelles ambassador who was on a panel I ran 24 hours ago, you know, he just had this look. Last year, people from communities like those he represents were in the halls yelling and chanting. And this year they're just saying, as he said on that panel, and you can see it on Dot Earth, um, he said, just give us something, anything. They're feeling very vulnerable in seeing these giants dancing around uh Basically, China and the United States, with India as kind of a middle child in that conversation, all uh, dancing around about verifiability and uh, this and and, uh, commitment to that. And and there have been talk, there's been talk, and actually commitments for decades about money, some money for the most vulnerable countries in the world to build their ability to withstand climate-related hazards. Very little of that money has flowed over the years, and. Now they're just kind of saying, geez, you know, uh, we're already vulnerable to climate extremes now. You guys are nudging the system in big ways that are probably going to make that worse. Um, Can't you help us a little bit? And, again, they've turned from being really freaked out to being just kind of numb.
0: Well, both China and the United States are very reliant on coal, and yet they seem to be the two countries that are most at loggerheads here. Why? Why?
1: Well, it's uh, a big chunk of this is about economics and not about climate. China is showing some signs of flexing and, and actually anticipating having restrictions on inefficient use of energy there. But it's a, as the Times reported recently, and as some experts have told me, much of their shift is a result of basically they're growing faster than they can even mine or import coal and burn it. They just can't Get it done. They can't do the combustion fast enough to match the pace of growth they've had. So they're going to be mandating within China more efficient use of coal. But that's not saying they're not going to burn it. They're just going to sort of burn it more slowly and efficiently. And the atmosphere will still receive that burden of gases because the, one of the big problems with CO2, the main greenhouse gas from humans, is it's uh, cumul- cumulative. It's long lived. When you release it, it stays up in the air for centuries for the most part, so it's uh, kind of like deferring your uh, credit card payments or something. It's not like they go away. And that, that can, so so talk of more voluntary efficiency isn't really addressing the climate problem. And you're just seeing between those two countries, oh, the other reality, as I wrote a couple of days ago, I have a post up about the seas in Cancun. It was like China, coal, Congress, and climate in Cancun. Yeah, and the Congress part is the United States Constitution has this uh, hard reality. Sixty-seven votes are required, two-thirds majority of the Senate, to, um, for a president to ratify a treaty. Uh, it's the advice and consent thing. And that, just look at the fights over 60 votes and the fact that we haven't signed now treaties that have been lingering for literally decades. The Law of the Sea Treaty, which Ronald Reagan was promoting, still we're not uh, bound by it. Uh, we've kind of uh, adhered to it on a voluntary basis. but with uh, some senators senator inhofe among them from oklahoma just uh you know there's a certain black helicopter uh, kind of attitude toward anything that smacks of a possible restriction on american power and influence there are over
0: 200 countries involved in these talks have they sent top level officials or uh, because they have in the past or uh have our expectations been lowered enough so that they're sending more of the policy wonk types
1: well if one <laughs> I guess the evidence of that was that oh, a couple of days ago, one of the posts I did was on uh, Secretary of Energy Chu, who came and delivered about an hour and a half primer on climate science and the technological solutions. And he was the first cabinet level person there. And I don't know, I assume someone else will be coming, but you will not see. Um, uh, I, I haven't checked the State Department plans, but I, I'd be amazed if Hillary Clinton showed up, for example.
0: Diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks uh, show the, the lengths to which U.S. diplomats went to strong-armed countries into signing on to the Copenhagen Accord, which came out of last year's meeting, including offers of financial assistance for supporting the U.S. position Do we know if similar tactics are being employed in this round of talks?
1: Oh, you know. uh, And does Julian
0: Assange know anything about that?
1: in, In the realms that I track, the stuff I've had time to read on WikiLeaks is a snooze. It's stuff that goes on that every country in doing bilaterals, you know, discussions with individual countries will always be talking about multiple benefits and options. And, you know, if you do this, maybe I could help you with that. It happens all the time. Uh, the International Whaling uh, Convention is prime example of this, where Japan, for years, has been building uh, support by uh, offering uh, f- foreign aid to small island countries with no history of whaling. But if you know, they go to the meetings, and so, hey, you, we kind of like whales, and we'd like to be able to keep harvesting them. So, um, you know, there is a quid pro quo stuff that goes on that it basically drew the curtain back on stuff that people know is happening but, that... Um, uh, it's not really surprising to those who really track this stuff
0: hasn't there been a number of protests at this conference who's protesting
1: there, there have been some there's uh, indigenous groups anti-globalization groups they're they're perennial and it, they've been held way back this time the the i went the other day i haven't had time to put up the video but i went to the clima forum which is kind of the uh, camp for the um sorry for the um ngos types and um they're um I'm just going to move away from that other phone. Hmm. They 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 have had some marches. Uh, several uh, campaigners had their credentials um had their credentials withdrawn so they can't get into the main hall anymore.
0: What about media? Uh, uh is there a lot of uh US or international coverage of what's happening in Cancun?
1: It's been very limited. I I have And why do you think that, that is? Well, it's uh you know uh whether you're talking about the science or the policy on this Story. This grand saga. Um, it's incremental, and one of the words in the newsroom, as I've written many times, it's death for any story is incremental. It's literally, oh, didn't we already write that? Or this meeting is inconsequential. So um, that's what's going on. And, and there, you know, again, as I said, there is a clear sense there won't be some grand outcome here. The presidents of countries aren't coming here for the most part, and and they're right. It is incremental. And as I wrote, gosh, in 2007 when. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate put out its grand report that for the first time really, you know, definitively delineated a human-driven risk of disruptive climate change. Um, That uh, I interviewed Ralph Cicerone, the president of the National Academy of Sciences, who's also an atmospheric chemist. And, you know, he said can the big question is can people respond to incremental growth and understanding of a big problem? It really is parallel and reflective of what happened with the financial bubble, the real estate bubble. It wasn't as if there was a lack of warnings of some of those things. But when they build incrementally, we tend to kind of – we, the press and society at large, tend to rush in after and say, whoa, what what just happened? And unfortunately, this this issue may end up being of that kind.
0: Well, the cover story in The Economist last week was about how to live with climate change. Uh so uh are people talking about adapting to climate change as... Yeah yeah and
1: that's been uh, right from the very beginning from the or the original framework convention in 1992 it's been clear that um that human driven climate change on top of whatever's happening naturally is something that must be responded to that countries have to anticipate and react to and that not everybody has the capacity to react to. So this gets to that original I said a few minutes ago that some of the poorest, most exposed countries um, like low-lying low, low lying islands, you know, face hey, Hunt, can you pick that up? facing rising seas or, uh, you know, if you're in a, a desert-fringed country.
0: You know, Andy, Hold on, I've got a... Andy, we're pretty much finished with I'm this sorry. conversation, so should we... I'm
1: sorry about this phone. Um,
0: it's okay.
1: Uh, the bottom line is we have to adapt to changes in climate and also to the reality that we're heading toward 9 billion people from seven, So, and most of those in four places that are already exposed to climate extremes at a high, you know, higher percentage than we are. So, so Andy, is, is the world
0: of... doomed, do you think?
1: No, no, and I'm—I'm—I uh, believe it or not, despite having written about this stuff since the 80s, and despite learning more and more about the human mind, that part of it, and how we don't respond well, I do see some shifts underway toward um, the, the reality that the world does not have the energy menu it needs to have a smooth ride in the next few decades. Even if you reject global warming, and that—and especially among young people—there's an understanding that we need to get it back engaged in. The frontiers of science and technology, and and also inventive in policy, figuring out ways to to get energy where it's needed, and to reconsider uh, energy choices where we have, in a way, too much choice. And I think I see signs that we'll uh, find a way forward. That you know, there'll always be losses. We we live on a finite planet. We have infinite aspirations, and and somehow or other, we have to come to grips with that reality. Even as, But I got the sense that there's this, we're sort of going through growing pains in a way, and I think we'll come out the other end of this century with something uh, to um, look back. We'll look back at some pretty rough times, turbulent times, but I think there's a, a way forward that will I mean people back then won't, won't be saying we were total jerks.
0: Andrew Revkin writes the Dot .Earth column for the New York Times website. We have linked it to our show page at WNYC.org, and we've been talking to him on today's underreported look at The Cancun Mexico Climate Change Conference. Thank you so much, Andy.
1: I appreciate it. Sorry for the ringing phone.